Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have as my guest a mentor, also a huge influence on many, many of you, Charles H. Green. He's a former New York taxi driver who also happens to be co-author of Trusted Advisor. He spent 40 years in management consultancy and the last 20 focusing on the arena of trust. Charlie, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Pleasure to be here. Could you give 60 to 90 seconds on your history, please? Uh, well, let's see. I, uh, your audience can tell already I'm an American. I grew up in the Midwest. I went to college in New York City, where I majored in philosophy. Not a terribly useful degree, at least at the beginning. As you mentioned, drove a taxi part-time in New York City. I then got an MBA at Harvard Business School and embarked on management consulting as a career, which I stuck with for 20 years. And then, uh, you know, life happened. I wrote a book or co-wrote a book called, as you said, The Trusted Advisor. And that turned out to be the kickstart for another 20 years of um, uh, broadly, I guess it's management consulting, but a lot more focused on seminars, training, workshops, keynotes, all around the subject of trust in business. So that's me. Okay, so what's the biggest myth about trust then, Charlie? Good question. I, very clear answer. The biggest myth, and people, you've, you've heard this, people say it all the time, trust takes a long time to build and it's very fragile. It can be broken in, in a moment. And that is, I'd say, 80% false. The fact is we, as human beings, uh, trust very quickly based on you know, all kinds of complicated and emotional, neurological, call it whatever you want. We, we make a decision very quickly and semi-consciously, subconsciously to trust people. So the speed thing, there's sort of four components of trust, one of which is reliability. That part does take time because it takes time to build a track record. But all the other components can be very quick. The other part of that myth is, you know, only takes a moment to destroy. Not true either, largely. If you if you have very shallow trust, like let's say I trust Amazon to deliver packages. Well, if Amazon messes up twice in a row, they're gone because that's pretty shallow trust. It's, it's very, you know, built around just one thing. If the trust is built around something deeper, like I may trust Amazon to deliver packages, but not to babysit my grandson. But if, if I have that kind of connection with somebody who I would be willing to trust to babysit my grandson and they violate the, the trust in some, some deep way, I'm likely to say, hey, what gives? That's not like you. That's bad. What's going on here? I don't cut it off immediately. If there's a depth of trust and a, and a, a history of it and a, and a deeply felt trust, it doesn't go away. It, uh, you get a second chance. In fact, that's part of the benefits of trust. We give people a break, you know, a second chance and so forth. So th those are the biggest myths I find. Okay. So you developed something called the trust equation, which many people will be familiar with. Uh, I'm really curious how you came to the conclusion about those four elements and what were the observations that triggered you down that path? Well, if you, you do me more credit than is due, uh, the fact is in the consultancy with which I was working, uh, we, we merged with another company who had this concept and they in turn had got it from somebody else. It was a three-factor equation at the time and I thought it was really cool. It was credibility plus intimacy divided by risk. And I thought just the idea of putting it in the form of an equation was attractive. And then I thought about it and I thought, that's not the right equation, however. It's mixing up risk with aspects of trustworthiness. So I and my co-authors, we focused on a four-factor model, all of which was about trustworthiness. So really, the trust equation should be called the trustworthiness equation. And it's credibility plus reliability plus intimacy, all divided by self-orientation. And uh, so there are four aspects of human you know, behavior. It's kind of like some of the academic definitions of trust. It's not unlike that. But uh, the, the, the field that I work with, which is mostly professional services and B2B sales, uh, if there's any one mistake they make, it is overemphasized the rational, deductive, data-based 
cognitive aspects of trust, which are the components of credibility and reliability. And, and the reason I think people focus on those so much are we live in a day and age where we worship at the feet of data and analytics and big data and AI. And, and um, it feeds into the change management paradigm of uh, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it which I think is ridiculous on the face of it. Of course, you can manage it without those things. There's a million ways to manage without that. But anyway, so when we go into like a big four accounting firm and, and we have a diagnostic tool that measures the trust equation, I can guarantee you 80% of the people who take that end up overly weighted on credibility and reliability. In fact, if you, uh, and we, we did run some, some uh, regression analyses on the database that we have, by a slight margin, the most powerful factor turns out actually to be intimacy. It's ahead of credibility and reliability. And it's, and it's a very different thing. It's all the soft skills stuff along with self-orientation in the denominator. Those two factors, it's very hard to come up with generic behaviors or competency models. It's very hard to track and define them because they're all unique to the combination of people in the given moment, how they're interacting. So a lot of what we end up doing is simply educating people what they learned in kindergarten. Guess what? People react to people. And don't forget that when you're, you know, interacting with them. Well, that's very insightful. And there's a lot to uh, take out from that. So if intimacy and low self-orientation are the key defining factors and have the highest levels of leverage, one is within your control. The other requires you to build trust in order to be able to accomplish it. Presumably, that's not something that happens immediately. Well, in many ways, it is. I think you think about how we meet people, and, and they always say you only get one chance at a first impression. Our first interactions with, let's say, a medical person, a doctor, you, you go in the doctor's office, let's say, Look at all the symbols around you. There's the white coat, the stethoscope, the degrees on the wall, the um, diagrams on the wall, whatever specialty you're talking about. The doctor comes in and, and he or she puts you quickly at ease or not. I mean, that all happens in a matter of seconds. And uh, we form impressions that uh, tend to get reinforced rather than it's hard to break those first impressions. So and if the conversation goes in the right way, those intimacy kinds of components get reinforced very quickly. So uh, again, it's it's not it doesn't take a long time. The self orientation part in the in the bottom, you correctly described it as having low self orientation. That's a good thing. High self orientation is a bad thing. Basically, what that means is who are you paying attention to? Who are you focused on? If you're focused on the other person, if you're curious, if you're really listening to them, listening in, in the way to simply understand holistically, who is this person? Where are they coming from? That has a powerful impact also on the other person's trust of us. Because we, you know, we all enter initial interactions with some degree of suspicion. And we may be prone to trust people or not, but uh, the immediate hurdle that has to be overcome is mainly overcome by answering the question, do they have my best interests at heart? Who are they paying attention to? Am I simply fodder for their pre-written process or their their best sales pitches or taglines, or are they really curious about who I am? And a very simple notion of how people interact is reciprocity. If I treat you well, you're likely to treat me well. If I treat you badly, you're likely to treat me badly. If I pay attention to you and genuinely listen to find out who you are, you are likely to return the favor, to reciprocate and become open and interested in my answers and my comments. So to put it in a much more simple, prosaic way, if you're always blathering on about your qualifications and your past clients and all the good you've done, it turns people off very quickly. You're far better off engaging directly in their issues and demonstrating the level of interest that you have in their, their situation. Okay. So trust can be generated quickly. Yeah. And it's a byproduct principally of having their interests first, 
being able to engage intimately in discussion with what matters to them, yep. to do so consistently over time. Yep. And what was the second lever? Credible, reliable, intimate, all divided by self-orientation. And credibility means that you need to... That's the expertise. That's the the competency, the expertise, uh, your subject matter mastery. You know, it may be slightly less important, but the, the, the point is not the relative degrees of importance. They're all necessary. Necessary, but not sufficient. So people tend to overemphasize the, the um, credibility component, but it, it must be there. You have to have some something. I generally find if we can, if you think about a B2B sales situation, for example, credibility is in many ways easiest, the easiest one to establish before you meet. It's your reputation. It's what you've got on the website. It's the white paper that you've written. It's the email that you send out that intrigues people. And then let it be. Once you start meeting and interacting personally, let the other credibility just emerge through the conversation. It will show up whether or not you know something about the subject matter. It'll it'll get there naturally. Don't obsess over it. And in my experience, that comes from asking the right kind of questions that feed off the other person's response to demonstrate understanding and the most powerful ones deliver insight through that synthesis. Yep. Agree. Okay. So in an early stage of a sales engagement, yeah. a lot of people really struggle with the prospecting element of the sales role, partly because of internal head chatter, not really understanding that uh, it's their job and they're not going to suddenly trip up over a cachet of lost prospects. Um, (laughs) So how does one create trust early when you're first reaching out to uh, somebody else? Right. Well, let me answer that on two levels. One is, I have to say, again, we live in an age which is data-rich and insight and connection poor. And I get... I don't know how many a day emails saying we have all this great stuff and and they may have targeted me. They may have used the data to figure out that I'm a good target, but they have not used it to do anything remotely connected with me personally. How hard is it to go look at somebody's LinkedIn profile and and to say, hey, I see you wrote a book or uh, I, I see you're based in Minneapolis. How'd you get through that storm the other day? You know, something that says at the the simplest level, some some kind of connection. There tends to be an overemphasis of quantity relative to quality. And, you know, because the marginal cost of adding another name on the email list is nothing. And so you get these marketing campaigns that are using a shotgun blast or the equivalent of highway billboards. When there's all these rich opportunities to create something much deeper. There tends to be a focus on quantity, not quality. So uh, because the marginal cost of adding another contact is is nil. So people tend to send messages out to hundreds or thousands of people. They'd be much better off uh, focusing on, you know, one-tenth, one-one-hundredth and amping up the quality a little bit. So here's an example, a concept called uh, bring a risky gift. Part of the way to kick off a trust transaction is to start by trusting the other person. That says, I'm willing to take a risk, you know, and, and the, again, the reciprocal impact as well. That was nice. You know, I'll share something with you. And, and the way to do that with a stranger in the business context is to put something out there that might possibly be wrong. In fact, it's essential that it might possibly be wrong but is highly intelligent, is, is reasonable, you know, not crazy. So uh, you, you might say in a, in a, in a three-paragraph email to someone you've never met, listen, this could be wrong, and I don't know your business like you do, obviously, we haven't met, but I've seen a lot of businesses like that, and I noticed that there's certain tendencies, and it occurs to me that you might be facing X. Now, again, I could be wrong about that, but I'd be very curious to chat with you about it. And what you've done in a statement like that, 
I do have something to say. I've thought about it. I've even made an observation. And I'm, I'm pointing out something that could even be wrong because I'm doing it in service to you. There are only two answers to that question, and they're both good. The first answer is, yeah, you're right. That is important. And if you have anything on that, yeah, we'd love to talk with you about it. The other answer is even better, which is when they say, yeah, everybody thinks that's the problem, but it's not. It's really this. In which case, your response is, oh, my gosh, you're right. Amazing. And now that you've said it, of course, that's so obvious. Tell me more about that. And you get people talking and, and, and connected about themselves. And from there on, it's fairly easy. So take the first risk. That technique, by the way, that bring a risky gift, B-A-R-G is the, is the acronym, that allows people to take a risk in the cognitive realm, in the, in the hard data realm. It's easier in some ways to take an emotional risk, something built around the intimacy or low self-orientation component. But a lot of our clients are not very comfortable with that. So can you give me an example of the intimacy thing? Yes, please. Yeah, sure. Be something like, um, hey, I noticed that uh, you guys embarked on so-and-so. That's got to be tough. That's got to be really hard. That's got to be challenging for a lot of people. What was it like for you? Or conversely, maybe share something about yourself. You say, you're entering this area. I had some exposure with that. And oh my God, it was, it was agonizing. It was the worst period of my life. How do you think it'll be for you? Or how is it for you? You share something of yourself on an emotional level. I think the, the usual stuff of, oh, I see you went to XYZ University. That fits in here too, but it's a very shallow level. You want to go for something a little deeper something more akin to uh, uh, having a conversation with your brother-in-law at a holiday than it is what we typically think of as pure business. Makes it a little bit more personal. Excellent. Okay. So if we take it to the next stage, you're engaged in a buyer-seller conversation. Yes. What are the consistencies that really matter around reliability? Actually, that's a a good question. I think everybody gets it. You know, yeah, you you need to have a nice track record. There is a tendency, and you've heard this, under-promise and over-deliver. Well, I'd suggest, no, that means you're telling two lies right off the bat. You're, You're telling people something that is not true, that you intend not to follow up on. And then you do that. You enact the lie. You're far better off doing exactly what you said you would do. Uh, and they don't even have to be in you know, it. So the, the rule is make a lot of promises and keep them and keep them exactly. Make a lot of promises and keep them. And they don't even have to be big ones. Interesting. You're known by the promises you keep, not the ones you make. Yes. Okay. Looking at trust through the lens of a frontline manager. One of the lessons I learned from you is about the need to give trust first. Yes. What advice would you give to a new frontline manager taking up their new post in order to create the conditions to be able to give trust and for it to be at least taken seriously, if not not abused? You touch on a very important point, which is the the basic structure of a trust interaction. There's always a trustor and a trustee. There is the person who takes a risk to trust the other person. And then there is the other person who responds by either being trustworthy or not. So trust is always this mixture of of these two things. And what what your question goes to, it it, it echoes what you said before. The, the, The best, fastest way to make somebody trustworthy is to trust them. Uh, to take the risk because the the other side being trustworthy that's very passive, and um, the trusting is the active and dynamic part. The analogy is in the field of sales, aggressively waiting for the phone to ring. If all you are is trustworthy, well, that's nice, thank you very much. But until somebody comes around and trusts you, it's not in play. It's not going to make any difference. So if you want to create your own luck, you need to take on that role of the trustor by taking a risk. So ask your question, if you're a new sales manager, how do you do that? It's interesting because that the sort of hierarchical relationships are the toughest ones for trust. Because if, if I'm somebody's boss, I have power over you. 
And while I think trust can overcome that, it's not the easiest one. It's a little bit easier to have trust, you know, with a customer or a parallel person in your organization. All that said, it might be by saying, it, take me to a customer and, and let me just, you know, watch uh, what you do. You tell me what you think is most important. And you show respect to them. You don't interrupt them. You don't try and take in and, and, and micromanage and take over the, uh, the sales conversation. Respect, actually, is a concept that comes in here. If you show respect to the other person's opinion, they then become open to you being critical. But you have to lead with respect. So, for example, if you remember when, um, shoot, what was the big sales book 10 years ago? Why am I blanking on the name? Um, No, not spin. After that, lead with insights. I'm embarrassed. It's uh, Anyway, the notion was blinding insights. Challenger. Yeah, yeah, the challenger sale, exactly. Uh, there's a, a lot to be said about the challenger sale. I really do believe in the power of insights and so forth. But if you simply lead with, let me tell you why you're wrong, and you've been <laughs> wrong all your life, and I have the answer, and here it is, that doesn't have a good track record. You know, you sure you first have to show uh, some form of respect, and the more respect you show, and the more that's felt the more willing people become to hear that very insightful, challenging insight. So uh, I think you just have to, you show a lot of curiosity, you interact in a respectful way, and and that's a big way trust gets built, trusting others by saying, you know, I... There is the counter-argument that is often put forward by people who claim to be ambitious, driven to grow the business, and so on, which is we're not running holiday camp. And end of the day, the customer has the problem. We've got the fit and take it or leave it. What do you say to them? Well, I think it's not a serious argument, really, uh, because the fact is if you that's true in a world that it's a one transaction world. If the only transaction, the only deal is the one on the table now, then there's something to that point. But simply double it. Let's say you're going to interact with them again another time, or let's say 50 times. The right way to think about this is that an old director of Goldman Sachs decades ago had the right saying. He said, we are long-term selfish, but short-term, we are completely customer-focused. And what he meant was you, you end up making a lot more money by helping people solve their problems rather than by tweaking the transaction at hand to be more in your favor. And I, I think that's that's absolutely true. Uh, I, I remember speaking recently with an investment banker. I was giving a talk and he came up to me before the talk and he said, I read your book. I like it. I get the trust stuff. But he said, the audience you have here today, he says, let me use myself as an example. I'm in this to make money. Period. End of sentence. That's why I'm in investment banking. And if that means, you know, I have to meet my quarterly goals, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And if they ever change those goals, I'm changing. If they change the monthly, I'm changing as well. Just thought you should know. Well, the answer is, I said, you know, do you guys change your strategy every quarter? Oh, hell no. Of course not. Because, you know, that would be confusing. It would be obviously, you know, selfish and so forth. I said, well, why? Why would you think that your behavior, if you change every quarter, is any less obvious? It's going to become obvious to your clients at some point that you'll turn on a dime to maximize your quarter's or a month's revenue. And that's going to turn people off once they recognize it. If, on the other hand, you exhibit the behavior as consistent with a long-term relationship, that's going to attract people. And very quickly, your cost of sales goes down, your hit rates go up, uh, your retention rate climbs up. It's a plus. So only in the realm of one transaction and then goodbye forever is it true, this this business of, uh, you know, we all got to make money, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, sure. But think about it slightly longer term. You will make more money, be more efficient, be a better salesperson if you detach from the getting the sale as the goal. Make that a byproduct. The goal should be fix things for the client and assume, believe that if you consistently fix things for the client, you're going to get your share and more. That's my answer. Okay, which I agree with. So my next challenge is this. How does management implement 
that kind of behavior in execution. Right. Leadership is driving a different agenda. That's the question. A couple answers. Uh, Number one, modeling, role modeling, the desired behaviors. It's always hypocritical if if leadership says do this and, and they do something different. But it's especially hypocritical when it comes to trust. So that's part of the answer. Um, And that, by the way, is built on the notion that trust can be a bottoms-up thing. I don't think you can have a trust-based organization with a bunch of cynical, selfish, untrusting employees. It just doesn't work. So the tendency is to look at the change management perspective at the top of the organization. And I say, don't forget, this has got to be built up through the people. So focus a lot on a simple vocabulary, highlight examples, make uh, heroes out of some people, and role model the desire you be you uh, role model the behavior you desire to have at all times. The problem with most corporate initiatives or change management is that they also tend to rely, as we talked about earlier, on the harder components, the credibility, the reliability, the systems, the processes, the data, the incentives, that kind of works with the credibility and reliability components. It doesn't work with the more emotional ones. So small example, I was uh, working with uh, Accenture some years ago, and uh, I was on stage after the CEO at the time, a guy named Bill Green. And uh, I wasn't there for the whole thing, but he was announcing some kind of overall reorganization globally. And when he was finished, one guy in the audience said, hey, Bill, have we yet lined up the incentives so that when I get a call from my buddy over here in Australia, I'm incented to respond in a supportive kind of a way? Well, Bill Green got visibly upset, got up out of his chair and went to the front of the stage. And he said, I never want to hear that question again. If there's ever a conflict between the incentive structure and doing the right thing, you do the right thing first and fix the incentives later. Am I clear? Well, 40 people in that room got very clear that day. (laughs) What he did was he took some basic principles of, of trust or whatever you want to call it, and he saw in a particular moment an opportunity to preach and proselytize and apply those principles to a very specific situation. And that's the trick. You can have all the mission statements and all the incentives and all the stuff in place, but it it ends up sounding vague. It's very easy for trust to sound like motherhood, apple pie, blah, 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 blah. It takes leaders and managers who see it lurking under every rock. They see an example to demonstrate, here's what I mean by trust. Here's what I mean by low self-orientation. Here's what I mean by this And, and make it real for people. I don't think you can't put that into a behavioral training program with with competency models and that sort of thing. You have to have leaders, uh, and they don't even have to be vertical leaders. They can be horizontal leaders, people who lead by example. But it's it's got to be that level of application of principles to specific situations. So that I think is the key to to, to building it up. That and a lot of talk about it. <laughs> so, if we have an incentive scheme that drives leadership to encourage behaviors that are short-term and transactional. What are the knock-on effects that undermine the argument that that kind of behavior is the most commercially astute and the most profitable type of approach to running a business? Well, a couple of thoughts. Number one, let's say you're a salesperson. And you're faced with this dilemma. The message you're getting from leadership is to operate very short-term. You don't have to do that. The myth is to believe that the best way to short-term results is short-term behavior. And what I'm saying is the best way to short-term results is long-term behavior. So you don't particularly need your management's buy-in to start behaving that way because the results are going to show up pretty quickly. I mean, let's say the average... uh, Buy cycle is four months. Well, how long? If you can transform yourself into a trusting and trustworthy person, you're going to see numbers on the board in four months start to turn around. And I think most sales managers would be quite happy to deal with results if you, even if they didn't think you were following everything they they told you to do. And the other part of the answer, I think, is that we uh, 
we tend to measure short-term results so overwhelmingly. Uh, the, I mean, I'm an old guy now, Marcus, but I remember when I started out a couple thousand years ago, there wasn't quite the emphasis on short-term uh, measurable results. I go back to the, the invention of the spreadsheet. I mean, think about the, 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 um, uh, the remarkable change that that wrought. Suddenly, we can measure anything. Well, we're all like a kid with a, in a candy. Let's break it down. Let's take processes and, and, and make them smaller and smaller. We've forgotten to have a larger framework. You know, who does three-year plans anymore? Well, and partly that's because things change, but partly because we have forgotten to have a long-term perspective. So that's my thought. Excellent. And again, I couldn't agree more. I think the mistake people make when they're prospecting is they prospect to hit their quota this month or this quarter. Right. Instead of prospecting for customers who'll be customers in 5, 10, 15 years' time. By the way, when they do that, it's, it's like burning bridges behind you. If you submit some, some impersonal crap to 100 people, there's 99 of them you won't be able to go back to if they even have a memory of you. It'll be a negative memory. You have to climb up over it. Much better off focusing on smaller numbers of people, doing it right, and letting that reputation accelerate. So again, this poo-poos the notion that we should be going on a land grab to acquire as many new logos and as much new revenue and hang the profit, hang the turnover, hang the churn. So how do you get through to a leadership culture that is incentivized by notional valuations at six times, 12 times, 40 times, 166 times revenue? And why would anybody who's operating that model ever consider moving to a trust-based selling organization? It's a good question. And, and I, by the way, people often ask me, say, well, who is an example of a really trust-based organization? And I have to say, there aren't any. I don't know of any. But I do know pockets of companies. Uh, there's a group of 100 people in Microsoft who are phenomenal at this. The, their leader gets it, and he just, he's been several places. There's uh, pockets of it in uh, uh, EY, Ernst & Young, for example. And the only reason I don't think it's made it to the sort of C-suite level is because leaders are still bought into the model that you just described. It's incremental improvement, it's, it's uh, multiples, it's uh, stock market price, et cetera. I, you know, they got to stop doing it. I blame the business schools to some extent. I blame the leaders to a great extent. And there's no reason that it can't be done at scale. And the benefits would be great. You would have higher PE ratios, multiples, whatever, whatever to look at. Because, you know, repeat business, you know, retention is far more profitable than simply reinventing and getting new customers every single time. So I think it's a failure of imagination and, and, and leadership. Once you explain this logic, it's really pretty simple. Higher repeat business, higher client retention leads to higher profitability, leads to higher multiples. And all we're talking about is the time frame is not even an issue. I mean, it's the length of a buying cycle. If we were to able, able to wave a magic wand and convert a Fortune 200 kind of uh, or, or FTSE 100 company overnight and suddenly everybody behaved in a trusting way, I think you'd see the results very rapidly and they'd be overwhelming. So it's a question of imagination and courage. So on the note of courage then, it really takes a leader who has the personal courage to buck the mold yeah, uh, or buck the trend and have that kind of difficult conversation with investors. Because the institutional investors will tear them a new one at the quarterly analyst review. So how does yeah, one... Again, uh, let's remember, again, there's the myth that the best way to short-term performance is short-term behavior. And it's a myth. It's wrong. The best way to short-term results is long-term behavior. That's a message that even institutional investors can get. If you show them improved quarterly results, they shut up. Okay, but changing the trajectory of a super tanker or even a fairly large boat takes yeah. time and 
it also requires some upfront preparation and alignment yes. to make sure Perfect. that the business is ready for that change in direction. Yeah. So what are the foundations that need to be built in order to create a trust-based organization? To be honest, I'm still kind of working on that because 95% of my work has been focused on that personal trust dynamic. So I've tended to approach it from the personal interaction level. Uh, and indeed, you can accomplish quite a bit by spreading the gospel, you know, the infectious disease model of corporate change. What you're saying is institutionally, what can we do to you know, prepare the grounds or make it more, more possible, et cetera? I think the single biggest thing that I can think of, and it's not incentives and it's not behavioral training, I think it is getting people to focus on principled behavior, the notion that there are a set of principles which if we apply them at all times, will improve everything, our interactions with, with each other, with our customers. So I, I'm still working this out, Mark, because it's a fair question. But I, I think right now I would say begin to emphasize the notion of principled behavior, not maps of behavioral. Here's what you do when this situation arises and, and not you know putting cheese in the maze so the rats go the right way. It's not around incentives. It's around uh, principled behavior. It, it, Incentives can actually generate the opposite effect. Absolutely right. And best example, how would you structure incentives to have somebody behave unselfishly? It's a contradiction right there. You know, so you're right, unintended consequences. I think there are elements that one can introduce, but it needs to start in establishing clear values that everybody buys into. And it's yeah. part of the recruitment the hiring, the pre-onboarding, the onboarding. It's the first 120 days making sure that the values that you claimed are the values that they experience living the role. Yes, and, and that, that part's key. It's not the choice of the values. I mean, there are a dozen different values you could pick, all of which you would get you there. The key is translating those values into the daily behavior, as you said, during the onboarding, during whatever, so that people quickly get, oh, that really means something. Oh, I see. I hadn't thought of it that way. Yes, that is right. So again, principled behavior, values-based behavior. I think another element of this, which is really key, is enabling people to find their voice and then express it. So the whole component yeah. of managing inclusively again, I think must be a bit of a challenge for many because they're used to more of a command and control. They struggle right. to let go of control. They struggle to give trust first. And they will have a perception that management is primarily a supervisory role. You know, I think there's some good news that, um, oh, there was a book came out a couple of years ago, The, uh, the Square and the Tower. Anyway, the notion is that, you know, up until 20, 30 years ago, the dominant model of management was vertical, as you said, vertical command and control. And for a couple of decades now, that's been fading away. Simply what's out there are a lot more horizontal relationships where people don't have direct control or authority over others. So that horizontal model describes, you know, matrix management, describes coworkers. The, the new notion of leadership is much more uh, around influence. How do you influence other people over whom you have no direct control to behave in a particular way? And when you phrase it that way, leadership becomes not, you know, the, uh, the few, the mighty, uh, and, and how do you get people to follow? It becomes, no, how do we generate consensus and, and move collaboratively? And I think that's that's just the, the nature of the way things are going. We're moving into a more horizontal, collaborative kind of a work environment. So we, we need to focus less on the, uh, the, the few, the mighty, the chosen leaders and uh, focus more on how do we play nicely together in the sandbox? Well, that is sort of happening already. And it makes for a more fertile ground for discussions around trust. I'm seeing this in the burgeoning of strategic alliances and yeah. the trend away from direct sales into channel-based sales. 
And there's a very, very good logical uh, commercial reason for doing this, as well as an emotional one. If you imagine yourself being this, uh, the hub and you've got six spokes poking out, and at the end of each, you have a prospect, one of which is hot because they're already an existing customer, right. one of which is lukewarm, and that's a referral, and the rest are cold. Yeah. The majority of business development activity is focused on the cold. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, which is hideously inefficient. And I can spout for hours uh, the stats on that, but we'll yeah. cover that another time. Now, if you bring partners in, strategic partners, they already have hot relationships with their customers. So if you're tapping into the right strategic alliances, they take you from cold to hot immediately. And any losses that you make in splitting the profits and the revenue are easily made up by the reduction in the cost of sale yes. and the level of intimacy that you borrow from your partner. Right. So again, it's, it's really important people take the time to step back and ask themselves, why do we do it this way? What do we measure and why do we measure it? And does it give us any advantage in terms of being able to modify our behavior yeah. in advance of the result coming in? And by the way, very interesting that you raise that strategic alliances point. I agree with you totally, first of all. And it's the same point that I raise with respect to cross-selling. The, the uh, you know, which basically is, is selling either more of the same thing to somebody else in the client organization or selling something new from your portfolio into the same person in the client organization. The biggest mistake is to focus on the content and to say, basically, you need this. We have that. Let me give you the business card of my, my guy who does this and he'll call you. Wrong. That's a total, you're asking too much of people to trust you. What the key to successful cross selling is you have to take care of the client relationship. So you bring in the new person on the client side and you, you be the moderator. You bring in the person from your side and you be the moderator. Focus on the maintenance of the relationship. And, and the same dynamics then happen there, including the economic dynamics that you just pointed out with strategic uh, alliances. Well, again, this is so interesting because what I'm seeing increasingly is a shift between new companies, upstart businesses that are achieving meteoric growth. Yeah. Now you look at a company like UiPath, over 100% growth in seven years. Phycotic, uh, Splunk in its day, they achieved incredible growth. And without exception, what they've done is they put the customer at the heart and made them the hero. Yeah. And almost without exception, they're doing this through third parties, which allow them to scale Interesting. without incurring cost or the same level of cost. Yeah. But it means that they have to be able to <laughs> infuse trust because you have to exercise influence and trust as your currency. Because right. you have no power. It all, yeah, it's all risky. It's all trust based. It depends on playing nicely together in the sandbox, as I put it before. And that's what you just said. That's the way the, the, the world's moving. Which is increasingly interesting because large organizations still have a mentality that is tied to what made them successful in the exactly. first place. Yep. So they call themselves SaaS software as a service, but essentially they try and tie people into one or three-year deals. Right. So it's perpetual licensing with a different label. <laughs> um, yeah. They compensate higher if their professional services team do the implementation instead of the partner. Right. So they put themselves in direct competition with the partner. Exactly. Conflict of interest, yeah. And, and the customer is interested in getting the best possible solution for today and tomorrow. And what they're looking for is 
vendors to collaborate. Yeah. To come up with more innovative, more effective ways to right. solve problems. So my prediction is that whilst no one ever got fired for, for buying IBM, no one ever got promoted for it either. And I think increasingly what we will see is more informal strategic alliance structures going to market as a collaborative effort and selling with others right. will become more important even than selling through others. And, you know, yeah, I totally agree. That's very well said. Thank you. And the, the results of behaving that way are, I think, pretty clearly evident. You know, more likely to get sales, higher margins, higher closure rate, et cetera, et cetera. And, and those benefits are pretty, pretty visible. And um, I think you're going to see, I, I agree with you, you're going to see more and more of that. And interestingly enough, those upstart companies will grow at such a pace. Right. As long as they've planned for that kind of scale. And they've created the conditions where they can be good partners and where that type of hypergrowth at scale won't break them. Yeah. Well, and just to, to wrap that up with a bow, if, you, if your organization is really good at trusting and being trusted, being trustworthy, then your ability to partner with new third parties, to collaborate with them, is enhanced and your ability to scale is massively enhanced. So one could argue the, the, the key to scaling is to get really good at all this trusting and trusted stuff. Thank you for pointing out. I hadn't really thought of that particular application of trust, the one that you just outlined there. I think it's exactly right. Excellent. Charlie, we've come to the top of the hour, Sadly, This has flown by. Tell me this. What, what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? <laughs> I'm in the process of, of, of retiring and I've mapped it out to be about a year-long process. So the issues facing me right now are how to how to hand over control of my my company, Trusted Advisor Associates, and uh, figure out what I want to do going forward, which uh, it will be less and less active, or I'll be, you know, traditional stuff. I'll be more at a hundred thousand foot level. So that's what's going on with me, transition. And fortunately, I can testify, the person that I've chosen to take over, we have a great trust relationship. And we're kind of rewriting the books on how to do this. The lawyers and the accountants look at us and say, you have to have this written down. You have to have a contract. And we look at each other and say, uh, I don't think so. No, we'll deal with that if it comes up. So the, the efficiency and the effectiveness of trust and trust relationships is something that I'm discovering anew and personally in this particular transition which is pretty interesting. It's really interesting. My good pal, Zach Selch, has this approach when he's establishing new partnerships. So kickstarts the partnership after the recruitment and courtship process with a letter of intent. And the letter of intent basically says, over the next 60 or 90 days, you will do A, B, C, D, E. And if you do that, then we will give you exclusivity within this region. And so whilst the lawyers are faffing around, dotting I's and crosses, crossing T's, you're building a pipeline and you're putting money in their back. And right. they're demonstrating their capability because if they don't meet those criteria, you're within your rights to recruit someone else. Yeah. And he's built over a thousand partnerships that way worldwide. Wow. Yeah, that's sort of moving the onboarding process forward into the recruiting process. Absolutely. Very good idea. Fabulous. Okay, what would you recommend people read, watch, listen to? Other than my stuff, I always thought that um, The Art of Persuasion, Robert Cialdini. Robert Cialdini. Great book, 25 years old, nothing has changed. It's still a fine book. That'd be my one nomination, other than my own stuff. So what are the titles of your books? The Trusted Advisor was the first and the biggest one. And we just came out with a 20th anniversary edition, Simon & Schuster published for us. The second one was Trust-Based Selling, which is kind of my personal favorite, to be honest. And then finally, the Trusted Advisor Field Book, which is a deep dive into executing on the Trusted Advisor concepts. 
Okay. So in trust-based selling, you have a lovely opening paragraph on the first chapter. And the bit I really love is the acid test of selling from trust is whether or not you're willing in principle to ever recommend a key competitor to a significant client. If you can never envision such a situation, then you always put your own interests ahead of the customer's. Now, let that sink in for a moment. The reality is you need to be vulnerable enough and trusting enough and have the courage enough to recommend a competitor if it's the best thing for the customer. Right. And that in itself is a huge builder of credibility. Oh, it's enormous. Yeah. Okay. I'm glad you highlighted that. That's actually based on a, uh, we don't need to get into the story, but it's based on a real life example where uh, McKinsey recommended the firm that I was in. And we went back to say, All right, you know, now you've seen how we can work together. Let's, let's do more. And the client said, no, we, you did great work, but McKinsey was big enough to bring you in. Why would we ever leave a firm like that? And they're right. right? <laughs> that was putting you back in your place. <laughs> so that then raises the question about working more closely with partners, really, doesn't it? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. How can people get hold of you? Very simple. The, uh, the website is trustedadvisor.com with an O-R at the end, not E-R, trustedadvisor.com. And my email is cgreen, C-G-R-E-E-N, at trustedadvisor.com. Excellent. Charlie Green, thank you. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Enjoyed the conversation. Likewise. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful, useful, challenging, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And make sure you tag someone. Tag someone who would benefit from this conversation and get them involved. And please do feel free to engage with either me or Charlie. In the meantime, you can get hold of me at marcus at laughs-last.com or direct message me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.